Okay. So, um, several months ago, um, I gave a message which probably most of you will not remember. It was called The Story of Sonship. Um, but you might remember um, this picture. This picture, the blank screen there. there you, go. you might remember this picture if you... Uh, oh, no, I need to switch it on. There we go. There we go. This one. I don't know if you remember that picture. How a guy feels like when they get called the bride of Christ. And um, I did put that up on, in that talk. Um, but today I'm going to be actually speaking about not the story of sonship, but the story of the bride. And I thought it was a good timely message for me because this is the first message that I'm bringing um, as a married man. There you go. So I'm going to tell everyone all about marriage because I'm an expert. Not really. Um, no, it's, it's going to be more about the bride of Christ and the marriage that we have in Scripture. Um, and because the transition for me from being single to being married is kind of fresh for me, I think it kind of helps me understand, you know, a bit about that transition because um, actually there is a big transition that we make when we become the bride of Christ as well. So anyway, many of us know that we are the bride of Christ, but what does that really mean and what does that really mean? What difference does it make in our life? What difference does it make in our walk with God? And how does it change the way we live? I'm going to get into some of that. Um, before we looked at, at uh, through the um, story of Scripture, through the lens of the Son, and um, that is the Father-Son relationship embedded within the Godhead. We're brought in as sons of God um, through Christ. Um, but we can also see the whole of Scripture through the lens of the story of the bride as well. And the fact that we are the bride of Christ. Just as the creation story was a story that finished and um, that culminated with a marriage between Adam, the first man, and Eve, um, the woman who was fashioned for him. Um, we also see actually the story of scripture culminates in a marriage. And it is the most important event in the entire cosmos that we're heading towards is a marriage between Jesus and his church. Now I'm going to Use a story. Now, just so you know, I'm not clever enough to come up with this myself. Um, I got this idea because I read a book about this. And then actually, um, Ken said something about it, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, that reminded me. So I'd like to ask my helpers to come to the front. And this is, we're going to go through a story in the Bible, which has a good parallel. So if, um, if you guys could stand over here, and Rachel, you can stand over here. Um, so right, this isn't like a boys versus girls. It would be a bit unfair, wouldn't it? If it was. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is the story in Genesis 24 about a special marriage um, between Isaac and Rebekah. And what happened was um, Abraham wanted to have um, a bride for his son Isaac. And um, here we have Abraham, who's chosen because of his... Big beard, and so Abraham wanted a son for his uh, a bride. Sorry, for his son Isaac, and he um, he he commissioned his his oldest and most faithful, trusted servant. So I've got Jason here, and I'm going to read. It says, "Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things." So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over everything that he had, "Please." Put your hand under my thigh. <laughs> it's got very 
very big thighs who go to the gym a lot. So, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, you can, uh, you can stand up. So just a, a quick thing. That might seem like a very, very strange thing to do. Put your hand under my thigh. Um, scholars believe that there was um, a significant uh, significance in that, which was like a, a custom for the time. And it, it had to do with, um, you know, really like a bond uh, of, of a covenant saying, yes, I promise with everything I have, I'm going to do this. And it's almost like, um, you know, I'm going to execute this thing that you've asked me to do, okay? And maybe the legs have something significant about executing something, okay? So, um, so that is that. Obviously, we don't do that in our culture anymore. And then what happened was the servant went away with 10 of Abraham's camels. I mean, Abraham was, I think, the richest man um, alive at that time. I think the Bible says, so he just says, 10 of my camels, off you go. So um, Eliezer, the servant, goes off and he come, goes into the land of Abraham, um, his, where he was. And he goes into a city um, and he comes across a well. And then a woman comes along and he says, um, if this, uh, he, he prays to God. He says, um, if when I ask her for a drink from the well, she also uh, um, says, yes, I'll give you a drink. But also I will give you a drink for all of your camels as well. If she does that, then she could be the one. And that, this is what happens exactly as he prays. He, um, he, sa he, he says, can I have a drink? She says, okay, and I'm going to also give a drink for your camels. Um, so then he says, oh, oh, this could be the one. So he then um, finds out who she is. And it turns out she is actually a relative of Abraham. Now, in these days, obviously, we don't, you know, usually recommend getting married to your relatives if they're close relatives nowadays. But then they were cl very close to, uh, closer to creation. So, you know, the, the genetics was perfect and everything. So he wanted someone who was part of his family because the surrounding peoples had a lifestyle which was not, um, you know, not a lifestyle that was in accordance with God. Um, it was very pagan, okay? So um, that's why he wanted someone of his family. So he went into Rachel. So, so he, he basically asked Rachel um, if I, he could stay with them. And he, she said yes. So um, he, she took him back to her family house. Um, they welcomed him. And um, he, um, he gave gifts to her as well. And he explained the whole thing to them. He said, this is what happened. This is what my, my master Abraham asked me to do. This is how I prayed. And she ticked all the, the boxes when I prayed. This must be the Lord. And they said, yes, it must be the Lord. Um, you know, they didn't, they weren't actually suspicious of this guy coming, you know, coming along. They said, yes, this must be the Lord. And he said, can we go? And they asked Rebecca, do you want to go and marry this man? And she said, yes. A man she's never met before from a distant land. And, I mean, it was part of her family, but they settled in a distant land. And she left her family that she knew. She went with the servant immediately. And they came back. And they traveled back through the desert. And then they came along to meet now, interestingly enough, how, how old are you about to turn again, Kev? Um, 
21. 21. <laughs> Sorry? Times two. Thanks, Rachel. So, interestingly enough, apparently, Isaac was about 40 years old when he got married to Rachel. To Rebecca. Year of prosperity. So, look at that. I didn't even plan that one as well. So, so they come through the desert, and she sees Isaac. She says, who is that man? And it turns out to be, oh, that's your husband um, that you're going to marry. And it says that she came um, to him, and um, this was actually quite soon after the death of Isaac's mother. And it says that you know, she came and comforted him after his mother's death which is a kind of a very sweet story, really. So thank you. You can um, sit down. Everyone give them a round of applause. So this, this is an amazing story um, of a marriage that's orchestrated by God um, and um, very clear that Abraham was very keen to have his son marry the right person. Um, but it's a story also that represents something of the marriage between Jesus and the church okay we have a servant who represents the holy spirit many um scholars believe that there's there's a parallel here the representing the holy spirit who the father sends out to find a bride for his son jesus and the right bride for jesus is a bride that will be cut from the same cloth as him one who is hospitable to the holy spirit just as rachel was hospitable to the servant eliezer when he came she said, yes, I will not only give you a drink, but I'll give a drink for your camels as well. And yes, you can come into my house and you can stay here. You can meet my family. And they accepted the message. They accepted the testimony of what he said. This is what God has done. And not only that, but she actually agreed to leave everything and leave instantly. Her family wanted her to stay and wanted the servant to stay for you know, 10 days or whatever to stay with them. They were probably being very nice and polite. They probably wanted to say their goodbyes. But the servant said, actually, I must be going, getting on my way. And she left immediately. She agreed. So, and they all agreed that she should go. And this is an amazing thing. And the same thing is true in our lives. When we have the call from God to come and to, um, to give our life to Jesus, the call is to leave a life behind to leave a life behind and to go and to be with him and then we have this period of time when they're traveling through the desert and waiting you know she has given herself she has left her old life but her new husband is waiting on the other side and i don't know how long that journey was it could have been days it could have been weeks but it was a journey nonetheless through the desert to get to where he was. And we in the similar uh, situation are like the bride that's waiting because yes, we have the Holy Spirit with us on that journey, but our groom is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And we don't see him face to face, but we believe in him and trust him by faith. And he speaks to us through his spirit. So he is preparing us in this journey before he comes and he meets us and we go to meet to be with him. This is why in Revelation it says, 
the spirit and the bride say come because we're we're it's that desire in us and the desire of the spirit for um the groom for jesus to come to come back to meet us now abraham's faith led to his descendants being chosen by god and as the bride in the old testament this was the first part of the story of the bride these became god's chosen people and later established as the nation of Israel. But unfortunately, the bride became unfaithful to God because of the idolatry that they had. And they copied all the nations around them and the practices and the lifestyle of other surrounding nations. Now, I'm going to read a passage. It's quite a long passage. So brace yourselves for this. It's in Ezekiel 16. And here we see some of God's heart for his people. And it's a very, very um, heartfelt um, complaint and judgment really against them but he says this he says um, so this this is God speaking to Ezekiel um, son of man cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say thus saith the Lord to Jerusalem your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite now what he's saying there is that he's using the tribes those two tribes the, the Amorites and the Canaanites, sorry, the, the three tribes, and, and Hittites, they, they were tribes that were very much against God and saying, these are your fathers. A bit like when Jesus said to the Pharisees, your father is the devil. Okay, it wasn't literal. You know, it wasn't that they were literally children of the devil, but they were spiritually. And this is what he's saying here. Spiritually, these are your parents because this is what you're like as people. It says, as for nativity, your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. You grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed you by again, I looked upon you, and indeed your time um, was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you. I embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of, of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk, embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Just imagine this picture of this person that God has raised up from nothing, from being an outcast to being this, um, this picture of beauty, of fame, of wealth, of splendor. And that's what Israel was. That's what his people was. Everything that they became was owed to him and his goodness and his um, kindness towards them. And then it says this, but you trusted in your own beauty 
played the, the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and incense before them. Also my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me, and you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter, that you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? And Israel did. They sacrificed their children, just like the other surrounding tribes, to other gods, to the god of Molech. In all your abominations and acts of harlotry, did you not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood? Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Therefore, Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable, Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the trader, uh, Kaudi, and even then you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. Wow, that's a, a long scripture, but we see God's, God's heart of anger and of, um, you know, of a complaint against his people. And sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think God's being a bit harsh. But when you consider what they were doing, when you consider what God had done for them and how far they had fallen from him, you think, well, actually, he's got a point, you know. <laughs> he's got a point. And the, the truth is, we can look at those people and think, how could they do that? And then overlook the fact that the same kind of seeds of evil can be in us too. You see, God's desire is, is for faithfulness. And if no human man wants to marry an unfaithful woman, how much more is this true of God? See, God's looking for a bride who doesn't follow the ways of the world around. Now, we might think our world is completely different to those people and, the, you know, where they were at the time. You know, we don't sacrifice our children to Molech, do we? Well, I mean, actually, 73 million children are sacrificed each year before they breathe their first breath. We just don't hear about them on the BBC. You might say we don't have the same sexual perversions that they had. But actually, the world is heading in a direction where we see all kinds of perversion. And it's everywhere, on the streets, on TV, shop windows, taught in our schools. The world is heading in a direction. And... It's very uh, easy for us to forget about what's happening and to forget what happened back then. The same spirits, I believe, are operating behind 
these kingdoms as the ones operating in our world today. There are many things in this, this world that are kept hidden from us, and the world we're heading in is in a direction that mimics these cultures that worship other gods with centralized governmental power that had control of education, family life and health, sexual ethics and religion, and ultimately persecuted the followers of the true God. But what happened in the end to the Old Testament bride? In the end, God did punish her. And in the end, the Old Covenant didn't really work. He didn't abandon her completely. And he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. One that's going to be better. One that's going to work. He wanted his bride to be set apart. And the truth is, it's never going to work in the Old Covenant because of the heart of man. So then we come to Jesus. Now, what was Jesus' first miracle? Anyone? Water into wine, yeah. And it was at a wedding. So he marks his first miracle as something at a wedding where he turns water into wine. Okay, and not just any wine, the best wine. Okay, it was tasted by the wine connoisseur and he said, Never tasted anything like this. Fantastic. So the next part of the story, God provided a way to deal with our unfaithfulness. And that involved the death and the resurrection of his son. The marriage was to be signed, sealed, and delivered with the most costly thing in heaven and on earth with his son's blood. The first coming of the son gives us an opportunity to see what kind of a man that the, the bride of Christ is marrying. What kind of family we're marrying into. Okay? Father, son, and spirit. And this is a man who laid his life down for his bride. This is a man who never lies, never um, cheats, never fails, always loves, always is faithful, has power over life and death, and is Lord of heaven and earth. There are no family feuds in heaven. Okay, Father, Son, and Spirit are in complete unity. Okay, and the truth is, there's no way we're going to spoil that. The bride of Christ is not going to spoil this. Jesus is not coming back for a divided church. He's not coming back for a church that is in opposition to him. Okay, so the next stage in the story is, um, you know, we're saved, but then we are being prepared. Okay, because in Revelation, it talks about us being a spotless bride. He's coming back for a spotless bride, and we need to be prepared for him. We need to prepare ourselves for him, and he is also preparing us. Okay. He is preparing us. So to understand this, we have to understand the, the difference between marriage now and marriage in the Jewish time. Because the Bible was written in a time when marriage was a bit different. In those days, they had a period of time <coughs> called betrothal. And in betrothal was a bit like engagement, but much, much stronger. Okay? So in fact, it was the legal part of the marriage. Uh, when me and Rose got married... We did our legal part of the marriage a few days before the ceremony because uh, we weren't allowed to do that in the Methodist church. Um, so we did that a few days before. We didn't actually consider ourselves fully married until we'd done the ceremony because we wanted to make sure we'd done our vows before God in front of everyone else. So it was kind of like that in the Jewish marriage, but the time period was much longer. Um, and it could be anything like up to two years. Because what they did was that the husband would go and prepare a home um, for the marriage. Okay? And they wouldn't live together. They wouldn't be intimate together until the time when they would consummate the marriage, you know, at the, at the end of that time. 
Um, so just as an idea, when, Moses, uh, sorry, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant in the, the nativity story, um, he was ready to divorce her. But this was during the time of the betrothal. So that shows you that this is legally binding because he actually had to have a divorce if they were going to separate. He couldn't just say, oh, I'm going to cancel the engagement. This was legally binding. Um, obviously, good thing he didn't uh, do that because, you know. Um, so anyway, now this is the stage we're in. We are in, um, in our marriage to Christ. He has set us apart, okay? The blood of Christ has, he's, he's done what on everything on his part. He's signed, sealed for, all the legal part is done um, when Jesus died on the cross. And when we choose to follow Christ, that's our yes. He has done his yes in the blood. We need to do our yes. And when we, are, when we confess, when we choose to follow, when we repent, we're baptized and filled with the Spirit, we are his, okay? We are his. And now the Father is preparing a home for us, and Jesus is preparing us for himself, and his Spirit is working in us, trying to conform us into his image, okay? You see, Paul gives us a picture of the link between heavenly marriage and earthly marriage. And I'm going to read from Ephesians 5, um, chapter 22 to 33. Um, <clears throat> it says, Wives, submit to your um, own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church, <coughs> just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be uh, to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does for the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul shows us... Um, how earthly marriage and heavenly marriage is connected. I think, her, I think earthly marriage is supposed to point towards heavenly marriage. And in fact, it seems to me that God designed earthly marriage as a way of point, reflecting heavenly marriage. Otherwise, he could have made us all like plants, you know, asexual. It could have been much more simple in that way. But he made us in a way that points towards heavenly marriage. Okay? Um, now, obviously, not everything is the same. Um, in our marriage, Rose is very well aware that I'm not the perfect head, okay? I have weaknesses, um, and she has strengths, which is really good, and that helps fill in those gaps, and vice versa, okay? Um, so I'm not the perfect head. Um, in the heavenly marriage, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus is the perfect head. In earthly marriage, um, we change. Both of us change. You know, I've seen how much I've changed, and it's only been a few months, um, you know, uh, since I've been married. Jesus never changes. In the heavenly marriages, us that changes. Um, you know, and, and this whole idea of headship, so this is one of the things I think that really we see a reflection. 
The world hates the idea of headship and submission because it hates God. And there are many arguments, even Christians um, often don't like this either. There are many arguments people use to try um, against these verses. Um, And some of it is because of the abuses that have happened. And some of it is because um, people have taken headship and they've turned it into something ugly, something dominating. Jesus was never like that. Jesus was not a dominating head. He was the perfect head. He was the head who laid his life down for his bride. Okay? Um, That's the kind of headship that we're supposed to model. And to me, that was one of the scary things about being, getting married was reading this and saying, and, and seeing that actually this is the model that I need to live up to. How am I going to live up to, how am I going to love Christ at Rose as Christ loves the church? How am I going to represent Christ to Rose? Um, thank God for the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, he's making us more like him. Um, but there's more. Um, so we're supposed to submit to Christ, and, and, you know, most of us don't have an issue with that, at least in theory, that we have to submit to Christ. And if we don't do that, then our faith is in vain. Okay, we're not really Christians at all. Um, but there's more than that. I'm supposed to cleanse her with the word of God. And don't worry, Ken, I did my homework. The word of God is rhema in this um, example. And so it's the rhema word, which is the word in season. Okay, so it's using the words, um, using our words to speak life, okay, and to build up, to encourage, and to bring correction, that, all that kind of thing. And so um, we have to have God's words in us, okay, um, and speak those words um, for, uh, you know, our, our, my wife. Okay, that's what I'm supposed to do for Rose. That's what it says here. And that's what Christ does for us. And so for us as a bride of Christ, we need to be ready to hear what he has to say. We need to be ready. We need to be listening. You know, just as Mary was listening to Jesus, Martha was distracted by all the sensible things. Mary, Jesus, prays because she got it right. He said, you know, she's listening to me and she's hearing what I'm saying. So, and the, the aim of it all is this. He might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. How committed are you to holiness? How committed are you to being uh, spotless without blemish for Jesus? How are we preparing? You know, when I got married to Rose, I had to be prepared. You know, there were sinful habits that I'd been struggling with as a young man that I had to completely cut ties with. Really, I should have done that long before I did. But the reality is, if I didn't, that they would have affected our marriage. Before commitment to marriage, I was praying and looking for a partner. And, but after commitment to marriage, I had closed my eyes to all others. And, you know, this is what we have to be like with Christ. You know, when we give our life to Christ, we have to close our eyes to everyone else. Because everyone else, you know, we can't be, we can't be going after the things of the past, the things that we used to follow. We can't be going after an old flame. Because... You know, there's no life there. That just brings death. It brings destruction. And ultimately, Christ is looking for a faithful bride. That's what he's looking for. In the time leading up to marriage, um, a couple of years earlier, I even started to clean up my diet, believe it or not. And partly that was because of certain digestive issues. 
But I also realized that, you know, if I'm going to have a wife and have children, raise a family, eating junk food and refined sugars and all these things, they're not going to be helpful for me. They're not going to be helpful for them. You know, it's not going to be a good thing. When we're preparing for marriage, we, you know, we read books about marriage. We got to know each other very deeply. You know, other things change. The kind of people you spend time with, how much time you spend. You can't, you know, be out with your guy friends all the time, you know, when you're married. Um, so there's many changes that happen when you get married. And um, the same has to be true of our walk with Christ. You know, the same has to be true. Um, if you're starting a new job, you prepare. Sometimes people prepare for days, sometimes years. You might go to university. You know, if you're going to prepare to be a doctor, how much time goes into that? How much more for a marriage that's lifelong, but how much even more for a marriage that is eternity long? We need to invest in our relationship with God and listen to the words of Jesus. We need to pursue holiness and purity. Um, the picture we have in Revelation is of a bride with white linen robes, clean white linen robes, which, as it states, represent the righteous acts of God. We need to be a church that acts righteously, in other words, we need to do the will of the Father, which is how Jesus lived. And that means we don't fit in with the world and its practices. We don't fit in with the lifestyle of the world, the ideologies of the world. You know, a lot of the things of the world are rooted in fear. Things, you know, they use fear um, as a way of, um, uh, of shaping people's uh, mindsets. And so we need to engage in spiritual warfare. You know, in Revelation 19... After the bride is ready, we see Jesus coming on the white horse, ready to judge, ready to wage war against the world's rulers and the evil system of the world. And he's accompanied by armies in heaven, armies in fine white linen, which is the bride, which is us. And the bride has gotten herself ready, is what it says. And, you know, in 1 John 2, it says that we go from being children to being young adults in the faith when we have overcome the evil one. So what battle is there in your life that you need to overcome, that you need God's help to help you overcome? You know, this is the sign of, of maturing in our faith is when we overcome. Because Jesus is coming back for a bride that's not a damsel in distress. He's coming back for a, a, a bride who's ready, who's a, a warrior. Not a warrior bride, but a warrior bride. He's coming back for an overcoming bride who's going to go with him, who's going to join him in the battle. And so our preparation is to engage in spiritual warfare, to, to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And finally, we need to prepare our hearts to be hearts of worship. Because when Jesus comes, he's looking for hearts that are full of love for him, not hearts that are lukewarm, not hearts that are cold, but on fire for him. Just as Mary was one who had that undivided attention when all the other stuff was going on, all the logistics, she had her focus on Jesus. And it was her that was praised, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. Can we close our eyes? Let's listen to Jesus right now for a few minutes. And I'm going to pray. Jesus, I ask that you would speak your words right now, that you would stir us right now, 
in our hearts, that you would stir us how it is that we need to prepare, how it is that we need to prepare. Each of us has our own journey, own story, own struggles, own situation, how it is that we need to prepare. For some of you, it might be really just taking that first step and saying, yes, like Rebecca, yes, I'm going to leave everything I know. I'm going to follow this man. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to, um, you know, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the bride. I want to be part of this marriage. For some of you, it might be a battle to overcome. For some of you, it might be something to lay down. Some of you, it might be the renewing of your mind of things that have been wrong mindsets. Mindsets that are holding you back. Or it could be things that you've dwelt on from the past that you found it hard to let go of. And God is saying, let it go. Come and follow me. Lord, stir us, Lord. Stir our hearts. I pray, Father, you would make us on fire for you, Lord, that we wouldn't be lukewarm, we wouldn't be cold towards you, that we would be on fire for you, that you would take us and take us to a new place in our walk with you. Let's just wait on him for a couple of minutes.